Hi everyone, my name is Wissam, sommelier and associate content creator for La Compagnie des Vins Naturels. We created a series here at the wine bar called Wine Bootcamp. We wanted to bring them to life and allow more people to experience what we're doing. So we thought, why not turn a bootcamp into a podcast? The way we're going to structure it, it's going to be an interview with peppering bits and pieces of the recorded live bootcamp. I'd like to introduce you Caleb, my boss, managing partner and outstanding sommelier. Hey Wissam, how are you? Doing great. How about you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. I recently watched your recording live bootcamp about Celos, which took place a couple weeks ago, and I thought that was fascinating. And I was thinking maybe you'd like to elaborate with me a little bit more about the details of who's Celos. What's the what's up with him? What's the deal of his wines? Why why it's so famous? Why it's so expensive? And is there any reason behind it? Yeah, I'd be happy to uh, to discuss it. So we just had a Salos boot camp. Uh, it's kind of an advanced wine boot camp. It's kind of a, a very fast, it's called a high intensity interval drinking sort of uh, boutique wine class. Uh, we've been hosting them at the bar now for almost a year. And every once in a while we do some extra special content and you know more rare bottles and you know, a little bit smaller classes, a little more expensive, but some really you know, big gems that get to be shared. So we did a whole boot camp for, we did three sold out classes on uh, Anselm Salos and his disciples. Anselm Salos is a champagne maker. He makes champagne in the Champagne region of France. And he has started kind of a, a movement over in Champagne amongst smaller producers, grower producers. You know, Champagne is such a interesting region. Most people know Champagne, I mean, as sparkling wine in general, but even if they are more familiar with Champagne as being from Champagne, France, they're more familiar with large houses who produce a ton of champagne and it's not necessarily bad not necessarily good it's just uh, it's a it's a question of scale and size so some larger producers like moet de chandon Louvre Clicquot, you know a lot of these big producers they make you know they make a lot of wine you know millions of bottles per year um, whereas some of the smaller producers you know they make thousands of bottles per year and they're farmers they're out in their vineyards they're in touch with their land and they're turning their grapes that they're making, that they're growing, into a finished product that's one of the most successful agricultural products in the world. I mean, you're taking grapes and turning it into pristine sparkling wine. It's, it's quite special and not everybody does it very well. It doesn't matter if you're a big house or a small farmer, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And Anselm Salos is a farmer, a winemaker, a visionary who turns grapes into one of the most pleasurable beverages I've ever had the, you know, the opportunity to taste. Just to give me a little more of context, can you tell me how it all started? Well, most people know Salos uh, as, yeah, Domaine Jacques Salos is sort of mm. the, the house name, if you will, or the, the label name. Um, and there was a Jacques. Uh, Jacques started it, more or less, you know, and Anselm was his son. And things really started to change when, when Anselm took over the winemaking. Huh. Um, he, you know, he studied in Burgundy, which is a little atypical and fell in love with the Burgundian sensibility of single vineyard farming and you know a little bit more attention to detail in the vineyards rather than you know just being making highly productive grapes uh, in the vineyards which is historically what champagne has been all about it's been sort of producing as much as many grapes as possible and so that you can sell them there's a, there's a big division in champagne champagne as i mentioned you know you have a lot of large houses most of the large houses aren't doing their own farming they don't a lot of them don't own that much land. 
they end up buying grapes from other farmers. So there's a, there's a trade that's involved. You know, these smaller producers, the ones who are farming and vinifying, that's, that's, that's more rare. His biggest value add was taking the idea of single parcel farming and really trying to communicate that terroir or that, that expression of those grapes at that place and time based on you know, what's happening under the ground, based on what's happening you know, in, in the sky and the climate and what, what, the, what the vintage gave him. And he does that every year, year in and year out. He makes some of the best wines, whether it has bubbles or not, in, in all of France and all the world. How could you compare uh, Anselm Selo's style versus uh, another big house champagne, such uh, Ruinard or, or Dom Perignon, all those big names? How do they stand apart from each other? The wines of Anselm Selos always have trademark Selosian sort of style, which is oxidation. You know, he likes the use of oxygen in his winemaking, and you know, you see a color change, of course. Uh, you you kind of get a little more of a richness, and there's a bit of this, it's a very pleasant sort of toasty nuttiness, which you can say is tasting notes that you could say in other champagnes, but his kind of just goes just a little bit deeper, a little bit more depth. Uh, and I think that has to do with a lot of different things. You know, he's starting off with some of the highest quality grapes you can possibly imagine based on his farming techniques. Because, you know, in winemaking, all you can really do is screw up what you've done in the vineyard in the cellar. You know, you can't take mediocre grapes and turn them into great wine. You can take great grapes and then mess them up and turn them into mediocre wine or you can take great grapes and not mess them up and make great wine. And I think that's what he does. He starts off with the best raw material and then is able to sort of transform that, you know, with his vision and winemaking techniques into, I think, you know, just tremendous depth and purity in, in, the, in the bottle and in the glass. What's so important about oxygen and winemaking and what, how they interact with each other? So, I mean, uh, he uses a fair, about, you know, fair bit of, of oak aging and oak as a, as a vessel is usually, you know, rather small oak barrels that are slightly porous and allow oxygen to filter in, you know, little by little. Um, that sort of, over time, kind of lends these caramelly, toasty, nutty characters to the wine. It's a controlled use of it, and that's sort of the magic that happens. A lot of people use stainless steel in winemaking. It's a great vessel because it's very neutral. It doesn't allow oxygen in, and you kind of control the product and keep it super, um, in a way, sterile. But his style is not that. His style is, you know, there's a lot of lees, which is sort of like dead yeast cells, which actually add a lot of flavor and there's a lot of oxygen uh, and oak. So all of that together sort of makes sort of his recipe, if you will. What's the family tree of, of Celo's family? Because after Jacques passes over to Anselm and then there's also a son now is about to take over the domain, right, called Guillaume. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, Celos? Yeah, so I mean, Celos is definitely inspired uh, a generation of winemakers. There's a handful of folks out there who have worked with him. You know, in the boot camp, we talk a lot about uh, Alexandre Charton, um, who took over his family domain as well, but worked with, with Anselm before kind of really taking over the helm and was very much influenced by his, his farming practices, I think, you know, more so than anything else. You know, carries that torch on in his vineyard, does organic farming, single parcel farming, and really is trying to express terroir. And in his way, the winemaking is a little bit different. There's some, some similarities, but I'd say more differences. And we also talk about, in the boot camp, uh, uh, Michel Fallon, who has a small plot of land behind his house in Avise, which is a Grand Cru village in, in Champagne that specializes in Chardonnay. And then we also talk about uh, Guillaume Selos, who is Anselm's son, so Jacques' grandson. And Guillaume farms some land as well that his grandmother, Jacques' wife, gave to him on his 18th birthday. And all of that vinification happens at Domaine Jacques Selos. They have some similarities, right? The, um... 
on the boot camp, you, you mentioned, you talk about Michel Fallon, you talk about Alexandre Charton and Guillaume Selos. What do they have in common, those four uh, wonderful winemakers? They're all sort of interested in farming. You know, wine, wine takes place in at least two or three stages. One is in the vineyard. You have to grow the grapes first. And two is in the cellar. You have to sort of vinify them and turn them into something and hopefully not screw up the work that you did in the vineyard. They all work with single plots of land. Grapes, you know, so Guillaume Salos plot that he farms, Eau de Sud de Gromont, is all Chardonnay. The plot that Michel farms is also all Chardonnay, and almost you know 99% of the production of Anselm Salos is also Chardonnay. So they're pretty much specializing in one grape from similar sort of you know subsoils. I mean they're of course a little bit different because they're not the same, but they're similar. Whereas Alexandre Charton, he he has you know he works with Pinot Meunier, he works with Pinot Noir, he works with Chardonnay. I would say of, of all three, he tends to use probably a little bit less oak, and the wines tend to be a little less oak influence. They have more of a fruity, sort of cleaner profile, by which I mean just, just less oak influenced. All the wines show a pronounced minerality, but I think the note of minerality rings more clearly with uh, Alexandre Charton's wines. Something that really impacted me, it was how much effort, how crucial was during the harvest. You mentioned search of purity. Yeah, so in the search for purity, I mean, you're trying to you're trying to do as much justice to as, as you can from, from the vine to the glass. And, you know, there are a lot of tricks and techniques that you can, you, you know, like you said, edit the wines. And you can have some pretty decent, I mean, ultimately what you're trying to get is grape juice, right? All you want is sugar-rich grape juice. And you can doctor that up in a million different ways. You can add enzymes, you can add oak chips, you can add sugar, you can add a million different things. And you can make it taste in a, in a way like what you sort of want it to taste like. But in a way that most of those wines are going to end up tasting doctored. They're going to taste, you know, um, manipulated. And if there's one thing that, you know, I think a large group of connoisseurs can taste as well is purity, the lack of manipulation. I think that's a technique that most great winemakers are using, which is, it's not a very original technique, but it's, it's hard to do, which is create the absolute best grapes you can, which is for me, for them, honoring the vineyard, honoring the vintage the best, you know, really trying to come up with what is the most pinnacle, the pinnacle of existence for these grapes in this vintage and then turn that into a wine product, or, you know, to turn it into wine afterwards, that's, that's the holy grail, you know? I mean, anybody can take sugar-rich grape liquid and add flavorings and colors and whatever and turn it into something, but that's not a very authentic expression, and I think nowadays that's all that we sort of have, you know? We live in such a digital world where you don't even know if the picture you're seeing was photoshopped or whatever, and it's, it's nice to know at least that somebody out there is trying to, to take something and not man manipulate it and just have it be an authentic expression, whether it's got stretch marks or whatever, you know what I mean? Like to quote Kendrick Lamar, <laughs> but just have it be an authentic expression of what it is and, and then let the consumer decide whether he or she likes it or not. Uh, that's a great example. Going back to the uh, sugar conversation, in terms of dosage practices, is there any regulation change? Is there why they, once again, I, I like comparing classic houses with, with this pioneer, can I call it pioneer? Mm -hmm. Is there some regulations that are now being established as we speak in terms of uh, dosage? In terms of regulations, I mean, there are certain like uh, classifications so consumers can know like how quote unquote sweet their wine is going to be. I mean, I think it should be noted that a lot of champagne does add sugar at some stage of the process. It's just, it's been historic 
in Champagne since you know the late 1700s, early 1800s. And I mean, by law, you have to add sugar to Champagne. Like it's just that's just what you have to do. Um, it's sort of the recipe, quote unquote. But most people, again, kind of on that similar philosophy that we've been talking about, they would really prefer not to, or if they have to, like they want to add as little as possible. So what most farmers are doing now, the great farmer, you know, Solos and his disciples, and you know, quote unquote, and you know, other people like Agripar and Lormandie Bernier and there's a lot of amazing, you know, champagne producers out there who know, I mean, what, what is a grape? What is, or what is a vine? It's, it's ultimately a sugar factory. You're producing sugar in grapes and that you want to get as much of that as possible. Historically, what you would do in champagne is pick grapes when they're like potential alcohol 9.5%. You'd vinify it and you'd add a ton of sugar to boost the alcohol to, to be about 11 or 12, which is what most champagnes end up being at. Now you have people picking grapes at 10, well, 10 to 12% potential alcohol, which is much more ripe. And therefore, a better expression of what those grapes are, arguably, because they're, they're actually physically ripe rather than picking them underripe. You know, that's one way of, of, of going about that. You're making, you have the sugar on the vine, you're bringing the natural sugar in, so you want to add as little sugar as possible. And you can add it at many different stages, but oftentimes most people add it as the dosage, which is the sort of the last step before you put the, the cork in the bottle. You add a little bit of sugar to sort of play with the, the balancing, the levels, you know, because you have a, a champagne's very acidic. And just like, you know, if you're making lemonade, if it's too sour, you add a little sugar and now you have a perfect beverage. Champagne's kind of the same way. But, you know, with, for example, back to Solos, a lot of his wines, he likes to bottle with no or very, very little added sugar, again, because it was already there. You know, he didn't have to add it earlier in the process because he had his grapes do the work for him. A lot of his wines are extra brut, maybe brut. You know, extra brut means you, you add, you know, up to six grams of sugar, brut is up to 12, uh, and so on and so forth. And there are, you know, there are sweeter styles of champagne out there for sure, but most, most fall within the brut or extra brut category. And you're seeing more and more extra brut champagnes on the market, pretty much everything we tasted. There are, you know, regulations around how much sugar you can add for those levels, but every champagne producer is allowed to add whatever amount that he or she deems right for that wine, and then they classify it based on how much was added. How do they keep consistent between vintage and vintages? It's a good question, and I mean, champagne, by design, has almost always been a, a wine that's been a blend of different vintages. Historically, even today, it's, it's still a pretty cold region. It's pretty far north in Europe for growing grapes, and you never really know what the year is going to be. So it's a kind of a primitive form of crop insurance is that, you know, some years could be great for Chardonnay or some years are bad for Pinot Noir or Pinot Meunier, and it allows you to sort of hedge your bets and kind of put out a consistent product from year to year. So oftentimes champagnes are blended vintages, you know, within. Um, every once in a while, you know, Solos does make a vintage wine, but most of his production is non-vintage blends. The one we tasted, you know, in, in the boot camp is his kind of most famous wine. It's uh, Substance, which is a blend of vintages going back to 1986 when he started this system, uh, kind of like a Solera system. So he'll add some of the fresh wine into the wine that's already been aging, you know, with all the previous vintages. You're always having a little bit of wine from every single vintage in that blend. And that A, allows for a nice house style. B, it also kind of provides consistency. You know, because of the way he ages it, it also brings in his sort of characteristic flavor profile of a little more oxygen-rich, nutty, um, oxidative, round, kind of almost salty flavor. And that's because of his, his unique method of, of aging his reserve wines. 
I think that Anselm, whether people worked with him or not, you know, just his success has inspired a new generation of champagne makers. And I think he's even inspired very large houses to sort of reconsider what they do and how they do it. I mean, he's achieved tremendous commercial success. Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He sells a lot of wine. I mean, for a small producer, you know, they're, they're expensive bottles of wine, you know. Uh, he's done very well, but he's earned every single penny he's, he's made, you know, because he's, he's changed the game. And I think, you know, he's inspired a lot of people to do things, you know, somewhat his way. But the beauty is that you can take somebody's idea, but it's always going to be a new interpretation. You're always going to put your spit on it. So even though Alexandre worked with him or Guillaume works with him and makes the wine at the same place and Michel Fanon makes, you know, essentially does a lot of the, the, the wine making, you know, day to day at Domaine Jaxolos, you know, they're all still going to taste unique and of themselves as well. So I think that's the cool thing is to see what different people do with the same ideas and how that expression comes out just a little more, you know, personal to them. I mean, he started, you know, mostly in the 80s, and, you know, 30, 40 years later, he's one of the most iconic winemakers, I mean, in, in the world. It's pretty cool. How much wine do you release every year, and, and what's up with those allocations? Can you, can you tell me about it? So, uh, you have a very thirsty world out there, and you have, you know, one man, a couple men making a couple wines. Anselm's highest production wine is the Initial Cuvée, which is about 33,000 bottles uh, per year, which is only about 2,500 cases. It might sound like a lot, wow, 33,000 bottles, but you know, if you divide that up, that's for every country, that's maybe 200 bottles or something. And again, this is his highest production. A lot of times people get pallets of wine of their highest production, and this is, he makes like five or six pallets total for the entire world of his highest production wine. So everything else is scaled down from there. Whereas, you know, I mean, literally larger houses are producing tens of millions of bottles per year, just to give you an idea. He's 33,000, so other people are making 50 million, five zero million. He doesn't make very much wine, let's just say that. Allocations, you know, it's, he sort of gets to divvy it up, I imagine, as he, as he likes. He sends a little bit to, you know, to Sweden, to America, to Australia. You know, people are always kind of coming and knocking on his door. Hey, can I get some more? Can I get some more? There's just not more to be had. So, you know, supply and demand eventually raise the prices. And, you know, they're pretty expensive. I mean, I think Dom Perignon probably is more consistently more expensive. Um, and I'd much rather have a bottle of Anselm Solosa's wines. Not that DP's bad, but, you know, if I had to choose between spending $200 on a bottle of Solos versus DP, I definitely would rather have Solos because there's just a lot more DP. Allocations, I mean, it's look, it's hard to it's hard to get these wines. Do you think I could compare that to the to the sneaker industry business model? Yeah, Solos is off-white. They're expensive. There is a secondary tertiary market for these wines. They're hard to get their hands on, but they're super super good when you do. So we're happy to get our hands on some and share them with the fine folks who pop into Center Street every once in a while. Uh, is there something coming up on your radars, on your calendar? Is there any particular event, future boot camps? Because I'd like to hear more about those boot camps. Can you explain me a little bit what's the boot camp about? So the wine boot camp is essentially, um, it's inspired by boutique fitness classes. You know, we wanted to take wine education, which I think a lot of people do want, um, same as getting, you know, a workout or fitness. but making it a little more approachable, um, both from a time perspective, you know, we try to cap it at like 50 minutes, five zero minutes, um, short and sweet to the point. We taste four wines, we taste some food. Um, there's a little bit of an executive summary on the topic, so people kind of walk away with a few 
bullet points and also a nice fleshed out description of you know what we're learning about. And there's a guided tasting of four wines. We talk about flavor profiles and maybe what's causing this wine to taste like this and so on. And a little bit of question and answer at the end and then people get back to their lives. So um, wine bootcamp was sort of a way to kind of come up with the, a wine class for you know a busy New Yorker. But I think that the concept translates beyond New York and um, we're excited to kind of be turning boot camps into podcasts so that maybe even more people can can sort of listen along as we're as we're you know teaching a few folks here in New York but I think we can probably spread the, the message even wider what's the next boot camp what's the next topic so um, I teach every once in a while I'm, I'm not necessarily the the best boot camp teacher I think you know uh, we have a whole crew of folks who do an amazing job so make sure you take their classes. I have one coming up early April on the wines of Jean-Francois Ganva. He's based in, uh, in the Jura region of France and makes some, uh, you know, there's some similarities. He's one of the most iconic producers of, uh, certainly of Jura wines, definitely one of the more sought after, kind of harder to find, you know. So we, we tracked down a few bottles. We're gonna do a few more advanced wine boot camps uh, in April, so stay tuned for that. There's a lot of overlap here, but you know, very, very pure, very unique. Much more Jurassic, you know, than Champagne. There's, you know, he's not making. At least we're not going to taste any of the sparkling wines. We're going to taste the more sort of classic two Jura style wines that he makes. So uh, be on the lookout for that. How do I sign up for those boot camps? If you go to companynyc.com, visit our website and click on the Wine Bootcamp tab, or you can follow Wine Bootcamp on Instagram at Wine Bootcamp. Thank you again for listening. Thanks for listening. And looking forward to bringing more Wine Bootcamp podcasts out to the universe.